You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This classic episode is one for the ages. True story, after we spent uh, (laughs) a number of years talking about all the top secret government installations across the country, uh, we decided to get with an expert named Garrett Graff, who wrote an amazing book about this. And, and you know, Noel, I got to say, this one sticks with me because this guy definitely did his homework. Yeah, he also has a doozy of a book title, uh, which is the collection of said homework, called Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. So let that kind of prime you for what's to come. Enjoy. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our compatriot, Noel, is still with us in spirit and will be returning shortly. Uh, They call me Ben. You are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Matt, as we record this episode, it is two and a half minutes to midnight. Um, I don't know, man. I think it's something like three, three forty five, something like that. Maybe Eastern Standard Time, Matt, but it's two and a half minutes to midnight if we're not talking about the time on your local wristwatch or your smartphone or Greenwich Mean or any of that. We're talking about the time kept by the infamous doomsday clock and two and a half minutes to midnight is a very bad time indeed. Oh, yeah, it may sound like some kind of diabolical comic book mad scientist's invention, the doomsday clock, but it's very much a real thing, and it's uh, it's designed to warn the public about how close we are to destroying our planet, either with technology, with uh, weapons that we've created, or perhaps, you know, by some biological means, by some uh, means that the Earth uh, mm. designed. Yeah, this uh, this metaphor is is meticulously maintained uh, and it's meant to function as a reminder of the perils we must address as a species if we are to survive on this planet originally it started uh, in 1947 which would make 2017 the 50th anniversary of the doomsday clock and for the last two years from 2016 and 2015, the minute hand of the doomsday clock stayed set at three minutes before the hour, three minutes before midnight, Mm -hmm. the closest it had been to midnight since the early 1980s. This year, it inched just a bit closer to Armageddon. And just some of the warnings that the group gives that uh, puts out this doomsday clock. Mm -hmm. They said the probability of global catastrophe is very high and the actions needed to reduce the risks of disaster must be taken very soon. 
Wise public officials should act immediately, guiding humanity away from the brink. If they do not, wise citizens must step forward and lead the way. Scary stuff, right? Yeah. But hold on. This is not <laughs> the end of the episode. This is just the beginning. Today's episode is not just about the looming possibility of national or global catastrophe. It's more about what happens Afterwards, what happens if a biological, chemical, or nuclear threat devastates your country? What happens if the capital of your country is razed to the ground? Uh, in here in the U.S., if Washington, D.C. is attacked, if it is mm-hmm. reduced to ruins, where does the U.S. go next? And what does the United States become? Yes. So that's where all of the important people are, right? Mm -hmm. And this, as it turns out, has been the subject of enormous financial and strategic effort for decades. It's work conducted largely in secret, and that secret is necessary to a degree, uh, to ensure that the government continues despite human losses it might sustain. The specifics of this are are shrouded in mystery, but one intrepid journalist uh, to to call back to the quotation you used earlier, one wise citizen mm-hmm. uh, has stepped forward, has pulled back in part the curtain of national security to reveal the elaborate, amazing, and at times disturbing plans of the U.S. government post-disaster. And today we are very fortunate to have this journalist with us on our show. So everyone, please welcome Mr. Garrett Graff, the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself, while the rest of us die. I mean, that is a title. <laughs> Mr. Graff, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be talking with you guys today. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, first things first, I think a lot of the audience members are asking, what what is Raven Rock? And could you tell us a little bit about how you discovered it? So this book traces the history of what is known as the continuity of government plans, the COG plans. These are the secret plans that were developed uh, in the wake of World War II and continue up to the present day that deal with how the U.S. government would survive a nuclear attack and rebuild afterwards, sort of everything from who would be in charge in the minutes and hours after an attack, how succession and military control would pass down through the ranks of the government, on to where U.S. government officials would be evacuated, and what the role of various government agencies would be in rebuilding the country after a devastating attack, whether it's nuclear, uh, biological, chemical, terrorist, uh, or even a large-scale natural disaster. Now, the title of the book comes from Raven Rock, which is the Pentagon Bunker, the backup Pentagon, this hollowed out mountain in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, just over the Maryland line from Camp David, the president's weekend getaway. And Raven Rock uh, was built uh, one of more than a hundred bunkers and relocation facilities around the Capitol during the Cold War that would have housed the emergency wing of the U.S. government. And Raven Rock, one of the three biggest of these facilities, uh, along with Mount Weather in Virginia, which is the presidential bunker where the U.S. cabinet would go and where congressional leaders and uh, the Supreme Court would go. And then NORAD, the Cheyenne Mountain bunker in Colorado Springs that's home to uh, the North American Air Defense System, uh, and probably best known to some of the listeners here from the Matthew Broderick movie War Games. <laughs> so these three bunkers, the sort of crown jewels of the U.S. government's doomsday enterprise, uh, are, are literally hollowed-out mountains. I mean, they have freestanding buildings inside of them, massive reservoirs for drinking water, um, you know, you can row a boat uh, on the on these reservoirs. Wow! And the police departments, fire departments, medical facilities—you know, everything that you would need in order to have uh, you know thousands of people live for weeks or even months at a time underground. The NORAD bunker even has a Subway fast food franchise inside. 
So even after Armageddon, you wouldn't be without your $5 footlong. Oh, thank goodness. I'm glad we have our collective priorities in order here. Um, this one thing that's really fascinating here is, uh, that you mentioned that this, this is an example of more than a hundred, uh, bases. Uh, what, what were, what was the impetus to create these bases and, and what were some of the strategies for insu- uh, ensuring COG in the past? So there were two things that really drove the invention of this. I mean, what I like to write about, what I've written about for much of my career is how technology transforms institutions. And what this book really ends up being, and I didn't understand this when I started writing this book, was this is how nuclear weapons have transformed the presidency, how one specific technology has transformed one specific institution. Because what you had was up until the 1940s, it didn't particularly matter minute to minute where the president of the United States or the vice president of the United States was. You know, as late as 1935, FDR, when he was driving back from the dedication of the Hoover Dam, his motorcade got lost in the canyons outside Las Vegas, and the President of the United States disappeared for the afternoon. No one knew where he was, where he might pop up next, or when he might return. And as late as January 1945, when Harry Truman took office, the Vice President had no Secret Service protection. I mean, as long as you could get in touch with the vice president in a couple of hours or, you know, by the next day, that was all that really mattered. But the arrival of nuclear weapons began to compress government decision-making time and required the whereabouts of the president and the communications capability around the president to be much more robust than it ever had been before. Moreover, what you began to have with nuclear weapons was the possibility that entire cities could disappear in an instant. And so you began to have to have contingency plans for what would happen if something happened to the Capitol. I mean, who would be in charge if everyone in Washington was dead? Or if you had the warning to evacuate people, where could they go? I mean, it wasn't enough that you could sort of run out of the White House and run down the street and you'd be safe. I mean, you needed to be miles away. You needed to be buried literally inside of a mountain. Or in later iterations of these plans, it became too dangerous to be underground at all. And we began to look at contingency plans that would put the president or uh, military decision makers up into airborne command posts. I mean, this is the system that still largely exists today, is this network of presidential doomsday planes, the E-4B night watch planes, these converted 747s that stand alert and have stood alert for more than 30 years now, ready to evacuate the president wherever he is and and fly with him for three days above the United States where he could lead nuclear war from the sky. I mean, you were joking at the beginning of the show that, you know, we're sitting here two and a half minutes to midnight. Well, we're also sitting here at this exact minute as we're talking. One of these planes is on the runway at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. Its engines are turning and it's fully staffed, ready to evacuate in the event of uh, a threat on the president. Wow. And they only need... A, a very short runway to be uh, called out, right? Like 15, 20 minutes, something like that? Yeah, so that, I mean, that plane right now, as we're sitting here talking, it could be launched and in the air in as little as 12 to 15 minutes, ready to rendezvous with the president wherever he may be. Gosh, have have they ever been used for any reason since this has been a program? Well, so it's an interesting question because we have seen it come close to being activated in a number of crises, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. But it's really only been used on September 11th. And on September 11th, you had these plans activated across the country. And so you had evacuation helicopters clatter into the west lawn of the Capitol and evacuate congressional leaders to Mount Weather 
helicopters evacuated government leaders from the Pentagon while it was still burning and took them up to Raven Rock. Um, these facilities had been sitting idle for much of the 1990s, and then it was sort of all restarted in a hurry in the wake of 9-11. Just quickly to stay on the technology and how it's evolved, uh, do you watch House of Cards at all, Garrett? Yes, yep. Okay, so you've been watching the season. There's uh, one scene, I don't want to spoil too much, but let's say the the president, whoever that might be, uh, in the middle of the night goes down and gets what appears to be a black briefcase that you know, has some power associated with it. Um, can you talk about what an unassuming black briefcase and a sealed index card has to do with nuclear war in the United States? Yeah, so this is uh, the the nuclear football. I mean, these are, this is the black briefcase that has followed the President of the United States around for more than 50 years now, carried by a military aide. And we, and we forget about this uh, often, but all of these majestic toys that we think of as the modern imperial presidency, Air Force One, Marine One, the armored motorcades, are effectively just tools, uh, fancy toys, to ensure that the president of the United States, wherever he is, is able to launch nuclear weapons. And uh, as much as we have in our popular culture and uh, you know popular mythology, the idea that there's a big red button or a red telephone somewhere mm-hmm. that the president would use to launch nuclear war, the, the reality is much more pedestrian. This military aide would walk up with this black briefcase. Uh, it, it's filled not with some sort of super-duper fancy computer. It's filled with binders of papers, uh, as effectively, a, uh, as one military aide called it, a Denny's menu of nuclear war. You could sort of point at different options for different levels of strike, uh, different targets, different countries, and that's the type of nuclear war that you would order. And then the president would get out his uh, what's known as the biscuit, which is this sealed identification card that he carries with him, uh, this secret card with secret code words uh, sealed by the NSA, and crack it open, and it would have a list of code words that he would read to the military national command authorities, the nuclear launch authority, and it would identify him as the president of the United States. And if that disappeared, uh, I mean, if the, if the president was dead or incapacitated, that power would pass right on down through the national command authorities and the presidential line of succession to vice president and and on downward to ensure that there would always be someone in charge of launching nuclear war. And and in fact, uh, during the Cold War, we kept in place uh, another airborne command post. I've already mentioned the presidential airborne command post. Mm -hmm. We kept in place another nuclear command post known as Looking Glass, these uh, planes that flew also out of Omaha, Nebraska, three planes a day, 24 hours a day uh, from the early 1960s until the early 1990s. One of these planes was always up in the air, ready to command our nuclear forces uh, with a general or other senior military commander on board. Whoa. And we know, I really appreciate that you said, uh, or you cited the, the crucial and dynamic role uh, and disruptive role that technology plays with institutions, because we do often see uh, technological progress outpace legislative processing of mm-hmm. that progress. Um, and it leads us to one of the most disturbing pieces of the puzzle here, not necessarily the the secrecy involved, although that is disturbing, and while it is disappointing uh it's it's understandable not to have a antagonistic foreign power know the game plan yeah. but w- one of the more disturbing things seems to be this how do we know whether these plans would actually work and and, and if we do to what degree do we have a degree of certitude here <laughs> so it's a great question and, and i think that the answer is uh these plans as detailed as they were 
through the Cold War probably would have never worked, or at least would have not worked in the way that they were intended. And part of the reason for that is basic human psychology. I mean, you have in any emergency, you know, the carefully well-written plans interacting with the way that humans react to unfolding events. And part of the challenge with these plans throughout the Cold War were there were thousands of U.S. government personnel who would have been part of these doomsday scenarios, doomsday plans during the Cold War. I mean, people from every department in government and the military, you know, the cabinet, Congress, and, and so on and so forth. But there was no contingency for any of those staff or personnel's families, their spouses, their children, their relatives. And so at key moments of tension during the Cold War, you often had people struggle with saying, you know, well, I'm not going to evacuate if my family can't evacuate. Um, Earl Warren, when he was Chief Justice of the United States of the Supreme Court, he he was handed one of these special evacuation passes, these special emergency passes, uh, when he took over the Supreme Court. And he looked at it, and he looked at the guy from the emergency preparedness office, and he said, well, I don't see a pass here for Mrs. Warren. And the planner said, well, you know, sir, you're one of the most important people in the U.S. government. And he said, well, you know, I guess you'll have room in this case for yet another important person in government, because I'm not going to do this. And he handed back his pass and never would have evacuated. And even as late as the Obama administration, I mean, even just in the last couple of years, um, I talked to an official who was part of these plans just within the last couple of years. And he, there was a designated helicopter that would have dropped out of the Washington sky and picked him up wherever he was and evacuated him to one of these bunkers. And he said, you know, I have two young daughters. And if they think that if that helicopter lands on my daughter's soccer field on a Saturday morning, that I'm just going to wave goodbye to my family and get on it and disappear, like, they're crazy. And that's that's a completely understandable and very human impulse, you know. Um, that's something that I think in the in in the in the modern mainstream public understanding uh it seems to be uh responsible for a couple of conflicting emotions of course we can fully understand any uh let's say a, a high level government official like a, a senator right or the speaker of the house uh saying on a human level i will not go to a bunker to ensure my life without also rescuing my children or my spouse. But it also seems to lead to uh, a slippery situation for the public when they would say, well, why can these officials take their families to a safe place while, you know, a John Q. Public and Jane Q. Public and their 2.5 kids are are stuck out in the cold or out in the irradiated waste or whatever mm-hmm. the alarmist situation would be. Uh, how has the how has the government or how have these strategic plans approached the idea of including uh, official family members? Are they um, are are they including those family members or is it still simply the utilitarian function of a person on an individual basis? Yeah, and and it's a great. I mean, philosophical question. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a question about humanity. It's a question about our, you know, small D democratic process and our government here. Um, you know, the, the goal of these programs was never to create an elite body who would get to survive nuclear war. It was to ensure that the basic and most important functions of government were preserved through the worst catastrophes imaginable. And so what this was an entirely foreseeable challenge that has dogged these emergency plans, literally going back to the first large-scale government evacuation drill in 1954. The, in Operation Alert in the summer of 1954, Dwight Eisenhower ran the first large-scale evacuation drill of the United States government, 
and all of his cabinet secretaries retreated to Mount Weather, that bunker uh, that I previously mm-hmm. mentioned in uh, Berryville, Virginia. And uh, all of their secretaries uh, evacuated as well. And I found this news story about how the wives of the cabinet sat at home and played cards through the afternoon in what was described as a very chilly atmosphere as they realized that their husbands would be evacuating without them in the event of a nuclear war. But this challenge, uh, you know, for reasons that uh, we just discussed, you know, it wasn't part of these plans to include families. And so uh, one of the only exceptions to that was during uh, the Congress built its own evacuation bunker at the Greenbrier, this luxury west this luxury resort in West Virginia that they buried a massive bunker underneath. And it would have held the members of Congress and the staff uh, uh, to keep Congress running. And then later, when they realized that members of Congress weren't going to evacuate without uh, their families, they did set up rooms uh, adjacent to the bunker that could be used to house families and, and relatives if they were evacuated also. Uh, but, it, you know, the truth of the matter was that there was no room inside the bunker doors for the families. So you, you could evacuate with your uh, husband or wife if he, was, if he or she was a senator or representative, but you would still be living outside of the bunker uh, rather than inside. And outside of a bunker, unprotected but directly adjacent to it, is arguably uh, a even more dangerous place to be, especially if that location is disclosed. Uh, yes. I, I, I don't know whether you're better off being uh, evacuated uh, and then being close to the bunker or being evacuated and, uh, or, or taking your own chances elsewhere away from a bunker. Yes, this is an important question, and I am so glad that you mentioned uh, the Greenbrier Bunker because uh, there's a tale involved in in the public discovery of this bunker, uh, which we will explore after a word from our sponsor. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we have returned. There was a, uh, a a little bit of a teaser here for the the famous bunker at the Greenbrier Virginia Resort and. A few years ago, relatively recently, actually, uh, most of the American public and probably most of the international public learned of this uh, through an article in the Washington Post. Uh, this, um, you know, our show was still extant at this mm-hmm. time. And this this blew our minds because, you know, a lot of people may be tangentially aware or um, maybe aware on some level that there must be some kind of COG plan, right? But very few people ever knew a a nuts and bolts example or a real world example. And what we're leading up to with this question is when, when it was discovered, right? When, when Greenbrier was discovered, Mm -hmm. it instantly lost an enormous amount of strategic value. And it ties into some of the, I would argue, necessary secrecy here. And now in the present day, we know most governments obsessively prepare for the possibility of a national catastrophe. Uh, as as you said, Mr. Graff, it, it could even be just a large-scale natural disaster. But now the public is asking, how much do we know or not know about these specifics of these plans and how much should we know? I mean, let's go out on a limb and admit that this is by and large financed by taxpayer dollars. Mm, good point. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's a tough question because it, there are sort of several different layers to it. Uh, the first is I, even as someone writing about this, agree that there is a level of secrecy that you necessarily need to provide for a set uh, of these plans to to work. I mean, that what I would refer to as the tactical secrecy is necessary. You know, mm-hmm. what the exact communications and defensive capabilities of specific vehicles or facilities are, uh, exactly where someone would be evacuated uh, to which facility. The secondary questions, though, uh, the, the larger, more strategic ones, uh, you know how these policies would work, how these programs would work, how they're funded. I, I, I think that there's much less of a need for secrecy around there. But some of this is also, you know, I don't think that the government really does know how much it's spending on these programs because they are spread across so many different uh, different programs, different classified budgets, different agencies. Uh, you know, the best I could generally come up with is that we're spending about $2 billion a year on the operation of these plans. I'm not talking about the the construction of the facilities or the construction of the planes or anything like that, just really mm-hmm. the, the maintenance and operation of these facilities. I mean, they're, they're almost all still in existence today. Um, you know, actually right now, Raven Rock, that the title of the book, The Bunker in, in, in Pennsylvania, is getting a big communications upgrade done by CenturyLink, uh, sort of right now uh, in the summer of, of 2017. Similarly, though, there's this larger question that we just don't really know how these plans would work in in actuality on a day-to-day basis and an hour-by-hour basis. I mean, we don't really know who would be in charge uh, in certain instances and entirely foreseeable instances also, which I think is the the troubling part, is there there are problems that we won't know until these plans are activated for the first time. Uh, You know, who actually shows up, who actually will be evacuated um, without their families. 
but there's also another set of problems with these plans that we do know could exist, and we haven't debated those, we haven't discussed those, and I don't think that there's any real need for secrecy. Let me give you a couple of examples here. Uh, the, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we had the, the tragic shooting at the congressional softball game. Well, that raised again this issue of uh, Congress's continuity and Congress's own succession planning, which it has largely ignored ever since 9-11, that there, Congress still has no good mechanism to quickly replace its membership if large, mem- large numbers of uh, members of the House of Representatives, for instance, are killed or incapacitated, which means that Congress would be left on the sidelines for months uh, at, on, on the low end. I mean, potentially, you know, six, nine, 12 months uh, without an operating Congress in the event of an emergency. We also don't know... Uh, some big questions and some big answers about the presidential succession. Um, there are problems that we are well aware of with the 25th Amendment, the, which guides presidential succession, um, including the very active con- constitutional debate about whether the Speaker of the House or the President pro tem of the Senate can legally become President of the United States. There's, in fact, a very good argument put forth by James Madison, the man who actually wrote the Constitution, uh, that says that members of the legislative branch can't participate in the executive branch. And so there is an entirely foreseeable scenario where, in some sort of emergency, both Paul Ryan and Rex Tillerson argue over who gets to be president of the United States. (laughs) Moreover... We don't really know uh, what what are the secret plans that we don't know about, uh, and and that's where I think some of the biggest problems are um, throughout the Cold War. And I explained some of these at, at great length in the book. Mm-hmm. There are examples of secret plans that one administration or another has created that would have deputized business leaders as sort of dictatorial czars in the event of an emergency. I mean, seizing all of the housing in the country, all of the, uh, all of the manufacturing in the country, and administering it and setting wages and setting prices. Um, we don't know whether those similar plans exist today. I mean, does Mark Zuckerberg have a piece of paper or Jeff Immelt at GE that from the president saying, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to be the czar of manufacturing in the event of a, a major national emergency. Yes. We don't know whether there are plans for private citizens to sweep into government roles as there were during the, during the Cold War. Um, people like Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld actually participated in these plans in the 1980s under a program that was then known as the Presidential Successor Support System, the PS3. And even though they were private citizens, they would have been designated in advance as effectively White House chiefs of staff, so that if a president was killed and evacuated, and the successors were evacuated to one of these bunkers, you would find Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld or another former high-ranking government official like that waiting in the bunker to tell you how to run the U.S. military. Um, and, and we don't know, again, whether sort of similar plans exist today. And I think uh, those are areas where we should be able to have a robust public debate in peacetime about what those plans could actually entail. So when we're getting into the private sector here and how they function uh, alongside governmental plans, one of the really fascinating things that I found in the book was this thing called Project 908. Uh, yeah. Could you, could you tell us about what that is and what that could have been? So 908 was part of a, you know, 
decades-long effort to try to figure out a way to protect the civilian population of the United States. It got harder and harder uh, as missiles multiplied and bombs got stronger and faster. But the goal was, was really to evacuate the urban cities and to figure out how the U.S. civilian population could survive. And so through the 1980s, this uh, secret 908 project saw FBI agents uh, traverse, you know, most of the country and figure out where civilian populations could be evacuated into rural regions and to map things like hotels and elementary schools and bowling alleys and food warehouses even in suburban and rural parts of America to figure out where urban residents could be successfully evacuated and housed. I, I, I live in Vermont, and these plans include sort of these wacky ideas to evacuate most of the population of Connecticut up into Vermont and you know house them in places like the chapel at Middlebury College or the field house at Middlebury College. And you know they knew precisely how many people would be housed in each of these facilities and that we spent, you know, millions of dollars mapping these and figuring out how to pull uh, pull together the resources for fallout shelters. Um, Nabisco at one point manufactured something like 160 million tons of something that was known as the survival biscuit, this cracker that you would have been fed in fallout shelters during the Cold War. You would have gotten six crackers a day, 125 calories a piece, and that would have been your diet inside a fallout shelter for the two weeks that everyone was expected to live inside. And if anyone is interested, you can find people opening and eating those uh, in the contemporary time, uh, like 47 yes, years later. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. There are all of these YouTube videos of people. You can buy these tins of crackers uh, still on eBay and, and, you know, military surplus stores and things like that, Army, Navy stores. And you can buy them and you, there are these videos of people opening them and, uh, and they, they don't appear to taste that good. Um, <laughs> now, truth be told, I don't think they ever were supposed to taste that good, but certainly 50 years of aging has not helped them very much. Oh, no. not like a fine wine. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I I appreciate uh, hearing that because that is one of the uh, questions one of our listeners had. They said to ask uh, Garrett Graff where we can get those uh, Nabisco survival biscuits. So you heard it here, folks. Uh, the author himself uh, says that confirms that you can find it military surplus stores and at eBay. Uh, this this question about you know the evacuation for civilians, for non-governmental officials, non-high-ranking military members. Um, this is something that really hits on a, um, I, I guess, a, it, it hits on a, a pivotal point in the conversation, which is that currently uh, the U.S. population has an estimated 321.4 million people right and uh one of the one of the i guess thematically one of the threads i'm noticing in a lot of questions that our audience members have sent us is they're asking what happens to the common person you know to um to jane and john doe do they and matt and ben and garrett the <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that it is a, a pertinent question and earlier you had said you know that these these plans became increasingly difficult as technology evolved and as the population increased. Do we know uh, if there are large-scale contingency plans? And if so, uh, do we know which agencies would oversee those, like FEMA, for instance? Yeah, so FEMA is the agency that runs all of these plans. Uh, and it, it has existed in many different forms since the 1950s, uh, but the modern evolution of it is FEMA. And in a weird way that most people don't understand, the fact that FEMA is the agency that oversees these plans is actually 
what it is supposed to do. Um, the fact that it also responds to natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, is really a, a, an ancillary benefit of the fact that it had developed all of this response capability to nuclear war, and that you know nuclear war, thankfully, uh, doesn't come along all that frequently. So they started to deploy these resources and these tools and these stockpiles to help alleviate the suffering uh, in natural disasters. But FEMA still runs these plans today. A large percentage of FEMA's budget is known as, the, as what's a black budget, a classified budget, a, you know, whole floors of FEMA's headquarters in Washington are sealed off from uh, other employees because they run these continuity of government programs. And in many ways, the plans uh, today are a little bit different than they were during the Cold War. Because while the Cold War plans, the expectation in many ways was some sort of large-scale attack on Washington and the entire rest of the country, today the plans are much more focused around a devolution of power outside of Washington. I mean, the modern threats, uh, you know, North Korea, Iran, rogue states, terrorist groups, make it much more likely that actually something would happen to Washington, but then leave most of the rest of those 324 million people alive and untouched, but leaderless. And so that's why today, all of these facilities are fully staffed uh, 24 hours a day. They don't rely on evacuation and warning in the same way that they did. Uh, and it was really the combination of both 9-11 and then in a slightly earlier attack uh, in the 1990s by a doomsday cult in Tokyo that released sarin gas in the subways there that led the government to realize, wow, you know, something could happen just to the capital, uh, just to our leadership, and the whole rest of the country would still be still be around untouched and needing leaders. And so the, part of what pe- many people don't understand about the presidency today also is that the president isn't just the person that we elect on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. The presidency actually encompasses several hundred people. And so you have you know, the people in the, that direct line of succession, the vice president, the speaker of the House, the president pro tem of the Senate, and then all down through the cabinet. But then also each of those cabinet secretaries has their own line of succession, uh, you know, 15, 20 people long. And some of those people are by design outside of Washington, D.C., so that in the event that something did happen to the Capitol, you would still be able to have people step into those cabinet roles. Um, but it would be sort of an odd assortment of people like the U.N. ambassador, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, the top federal prosecutor in Chicago, and people like the, the manager of the Department of Energy's Savannah River Operations Center, outside of Savannah, who would suddenly announce themselves as the leaders of the United States. Oh, man. This is heavy stuff, you guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like we're gonna, we need to take a, another quick break and hear a word from our sponsor, and then get right back into it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, 
So does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we have returned, assuming that civilization has not fallen while you <laughs> were on an ad break. Uh, one thing that's one thing that's fascinating here about this discussion is if we if if we do a little bit of a thought exercise and we imagine a, a nation um, devolving, as you said, Mr. Graff, uh, in, in this devolution into um, a line of succession for leadership, right? A line of succession for leadership. Then there's there's this amazing question: Would someone who let's say, lives on the other side of the country or lives in the Midwest, uh, would they acknowledge the rise of uh, a Savannah-based organization of people who survived uh, or officials or government that survived the catastrophe saying, this is now the leadership of the U.S.? Because it seems like one of the big things people would have to uh, worry about organizationally would be the acceptance of authority. And I'm, I'm wondering if there are, if there are any plans to do that, because if it's already, I mean, this is a country that does have a large amount of, um, I guess, self-governance or autonomy in its, in its DNA. And this is a country that has a large amount of gun ownership and tension already mm -hmm. before a bomb drops. What, what if any plans, uh, do we know of uh, involving uh, – are there any plans that we know of that involve um, making the population a cohesive whole? So it, you've caught right to the heart of one of the conundrums that the government really did struggle with. And the idea actually uh, – they came up with a couple of different phases of this uh, as a response. The first was – the. In addition to all of these bunkers around the capital itself, FEMA built a series of regional bunkers uh, around the country, eight of them uh, in places like Maynard, Massachusetts, and Denton, Texas. And, uh, and these bunkers would have really overseen a regional government, uh, you know, a half dozen states perhaps at a time. Uh, and the idea was that that the federal government would devolve to these regional bunkers for and, and regional governments for some period of time while the national government, the, the federal government itself, was reconstituted and rebuilt. But that for all intents and purposes, the major decisions would be being made out of these regional bunkers with these regional governments. The UK actually came up with a relatively similar system 
where they built regional command, regional government bunkers all over the country. And the thinking, again, being that it would take a little bit of time to restore the total power of the federal government. And so they wanted to, uh, you know, have in place, a, you know, a, effectively a temporary government that could carry over until the national government was ready to reassert control over the whole country. So when a lot of these plans were originating uh, post-World War II and then as we get into the Cold War and it reaches its heights, the the known enemy, the known known enemy, I guess, of the United States uh, were the communists in all of the different ways uh, that they existed. And there were some plans that were put in place even before, like, let's say a nuke attack was confirmed. There were plans in place to round up subversives on U.S. soil, and it was called Plan C. And I was, I was wondering if you could go over what that is and then perhaps what a contemporary version of that looks like. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about the president's nuclear football, the black briefcase that follows him around. A lot of people don't know that through much of the Cold War, the attorney general was also followed around by basically the attorney general's football, uh, the emergency briefcase that followed him wherever he went that would have contained uh, plans to suspend uh, habeas corpus, to de- suspend civil liberties, to declare martial law across the country, and to round up you know, more than 10,000 suspected subversives and foreign agents who lived across the United States that uh, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover kept tabs on. And he wanted them swept up in the opening minutes, uh, opening hours of an attack on the country. Mm-hmm. So these plans existed through most of the Cold War. Uh, the subversive list in its sort of existing current form was sort of wound down uh, in the post-Watergate era. Uh, But we have every reason to believe that some version of these draft plans, these draft executive orders, this draft legislation, even this draft subversives list probably still exists today. And that in the... uh, in the remarks of in the event in the wake of events like 9/11, you saw officials uh, admit that effectively, if things had gotten worse, they would have just declared martial law. That any sort of large-scale catastrophe would come with the suspension of civil liberties, the declaration of martial law, and you know things like habeas corpus. Uh, withdrawn until something more like peacetime was able to be reestablished. It's fascinating. And it's also, there's a one question that we keep seeing come up, which concerns uh, private industry. We touched a little bit on um, the the ideas of czars, right, and, and uh, the devolution of normally state powers to private entities. But one thing that a lot of people have been asking us about are the rise of privately owned bunkers. You know, everything from Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah, everything from the small, um, the small family bunker to the larger. I I think there are even some renovated uh, former missile silos that people have sold on real estate here. And I, I guess one of the questions that we have is. Are those on? Are are those a fad, or are they legitimately on par with some of the professional, uh, the states-sponsored bunkers? Mm-hmm. So they're uh, they're definitely at some level a modern fad. I mean, part of this challenge of worrying about doomsday prepping and things uh, like the modern versions of these threats, like the electromagnetic pulse that could wipe out electrical grids uh, in the event of a high-altitude nuclear uh, explosion. But at the same time, we've seen this straight through all of the Cold War and the history of 
continuity of government planning where private citizens, uh, you know, have built and maintained their own fallout shelters, built and maintained their own bunkers. And a lot uh, through the Cold War, a lot of private companies actually had their own bunkers. Companies like IBM or or AT&T were very tightly integrated into these government plans and so kept their own bunkers for their own executives. Um, You know, Iron Mountain, uh, what we think of now as sort of a records retention business, really grew out of people in in private companies beginning to want to have their own nuclear bunkers uh, underground. Mm -hmm. All right, so you must have gotten some kind of special clearance to uh, learn about a lot of this stuff. I'm assuming, and hey, you don't have to tell us about it, Garrett. It's cool. But we were wondering if if you learned anything that you couldn't include in the book for national security reasons. So I I didn't have any special clearance uh, for this. You know, this was all uh, good old-fashioned journalistic and uh, archival digging, um, interviewing people who'd been parts of these plans over the years, uh, you know, cross-referencing uh, old documents, declassified documents. Uh, but there were certainly some details that I kept out of the the book that I did learn uh, that fell into the category that I discussed uh, of what I described as tactical secrecy. I mean, mm-hmm. the exact capabilities of specific facilities or specific vehicles that might be used during these evacuations. Uh, But I think the bigger problem is not the the secrecy of these plans. It's the lack of transparency of these plans. And so, you know, I I certainly dug as much as I could, uh, but I think there's a lot more digging to do, and I hope we'll learn a lot more about these plans over the months and years ahead. Fantastic. Uh, Mr. Graff, we want to, again, thank you on behalf of our listeners uh, so much for your time and even more so for all of the extensive uh, journalistic effort we we know that this took. I mean, I'm just imagining leafing through the uh, FOI, uh, the the Freedom of Information Act request alone Mm -hmm. uh, has to be very time consuming. And As we end the episode today, we would like to close on a final question. Uh, Matt, I'll let you do the honors. All right. Garrett, I'm just extrapolating here, but it feels like the ultimate continuity of government in in what, 40, 50, maybe 100 years is going to be Mars. What say you? I, I think, you know, that's certainly what Elon Musk is, is arguing as he pushes <laughs> us more into the space world. So uh, I think that there is no shortage of opportunities uh, outside of this planet to help preserve the life on this planet. That is a fantastic, dare I say, poetic answer, Mr. Graff. Uh, we are concluding our interview with Mr. Garrett M. Graff, the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Uh, he has written other books, including The Threat Matrix, The FBI at War, Angel is Airborne, and The First Campaign. Mr. Graff, if people would like to learn more about uh, not just Raven Rock, but your work overall, uh, where can they go to find more information? Well, uh, the books are all available from Amazon or any of your great independent local bookstores. Uh, and then you can always check out my website at GarrettGraff.com or my Twitter, VermontGMG. Great. And, if you and that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com stuff they don't want you to know is a production of iheartradio for more podcasts from iheartradio visit the iheartradio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.